0: This is Speaker Series Rewind, a podcast by High Alpha. In this series, we revisit our favorite discussions from High Alpha Speaker Series events.
1: Welcome to our monthly Speaker Series.
0: And each week, we'll introduce you to the industry leaders, successful entrepreneurs, and investors running everything from breakout SaaS companies to professional racing teams and beyond. I am
1: really, really excited for this conversation.
0: You'll hear ideas that will inspire you to overcome obstacles. There's
1: no construction manual when you start your first company.
0: Become a better leader and try new things.
1: When I see a new product category, that someone says, like, it's the dumbest thing ever. Like,
0: oh, OK,
2: that sounds
1: interesting.
0: Because after all, good leaders are always learning. You
1: are not expecting to know the answer. Instead, you are expected to learn the answer.
0: Get ready to build better habits. We are what we repeatedly do. And embrace conflict.
1: Conflict is healthy. Conflict should
0: be expected. With inspirational interviews from High Alpha. Welcome back to Speaker Series Rewind, a podcast hosted by High Alpha. My name is Emma Ryan, and I'm on the marketing team here at High Alpha. For those of you who are new to the show, we revisit High Alpha Speaker Series events. For Season 2, we're giving you a peek behind the curtain into the world of venture capital through conversations with leading investors. In today's episode, we are revisiting our conversation with Jenny Lefcourt, Freestyle Capital General Partner. You'll hear Jenny's investment and decision-making frameworks her mission to take risks in both her personal and professional life, and how she is playing an active role in identifying opportunities for inclusion and venture capital. With that, let's get into the episode.
1: Welcome to everyone who's joining us today from all parts of the country. Welcome to our 47th High Office Speaker Series. This is a tradition that we started five years ago and even in our virtual context, we're, we continue to go strong. So thank you for joining us today. And thanks to our sponsors, Ice Miller, Lightbound, Internet, and our good friend Silicon Valley Bank for underwriting these these speaker series and making it, making it possible. We're, we're really, really grateful for your your continued support. We've got an awesome speaker series lined up for us today. We're joined by a good friend of High Alpha's, Jenny Lefcourt. I'm going to give you a little background, a little bio on her, and then, and then we'll, we'll slide into some fireside chat and Q&A. But Jenny's a general partner at Freestyle Capital, Bay Area Seed Stage Venture Fund, who's invested in a few companies you may have heard of, such as Airtable, Intercom, Digit, BetterUp, and many, many others. Jenny did have a life before venture, however. Uh, She's the consummate operator and was an incredibly successful entrepreneur prior to hopping to the other side of the table. She co-founded theweddingchannel.com and Bella Pictures, both of which she subsequently sold, and she's been an active angel investor. She's invested and in advised and served on the boards of companies such as Discord, Main Street Hub, Minted, and Style Seat. So she is pedigreed both from an operational perspective, advisory perspective, and certainly has been a, a really remarkably successful investor. Maybe most interesting, I don't know if I should say most interesting, but additionally and very interesting, Ginny is a member of All Raise, which is a nonprofit dedicated to increasing diversity, both on the funding side of the ball, but also on the founder side of the ball. So I think that's really relevant and look forward to touching on her experiences and background working with that organization as well. So with that said, please help me welcome jenny yay (laughs) we're still working on how to pipe the uh, the the applause in we haven't figured it out yet but jenny i don't care
2: about i don't care about applause but if you could get me a laugh track that's
1: all (laughs) that's what i really want (laughs) all right drew if you could look into that that would be fantastic um seriously jenny thanks so much for joining us we you we have such admiration for you um, your partners and freestyle you've been amazing partners to us at high alpha both from a deal flow perspective, but also just good friends. And that's probably the coolest part about this business is the ability to connect with people relationally and build meaningful friendships. And we feel like we really have that with you and your team at Freestyle. I, I wonder if we could just start, simple question, You know, if we could just go back from the beginning and hear about your background, where you're from, family, education, how you got into this racket, and, uh, and take as much time as you want. We'd just love to hear from whence you came.
2: Absolutely. So thanks so much for having me. We feel the same about High Alpha. Very, very big fans. Um, so happy to be here. So I was born in Miami, Florida. And Miami wasn't really on the map back when I was born So I'm 51 years old. So it was before there was South Beach. So well before, you know, a lot. And so it was a small town and at the time and, uh, and really grew up in just a, like a regular, it was like a suburb that didn't even have a city attached to it. And my parents actually got divorced when I was five, which was interesting because my father was a businessman who was a CPA and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And so we were just taught, my dad loved his job. And so from a young age, and we were a very close family and I'd see grandparents I was close with on both sides, cousins. And we were just always taught no matter what you do, make sure you love it. My father would just hammer that into us. And he would actually say like, I don't care if you're a garbage collector. I don't care what, like there's, don't worry about the prestige of anything. Just make sure whatever you do, you love because you're gonna do it a lot of your life. Hmm. So that was in me. But to be totally honest, I wasn't really motivated in high school. I went to one of those big high schools, super public, thousand kids a class. So, you know, 3000 kids in the school, 800 would graduate. So 200 didn't even finish high school. Mm. And then of the 800, the vast majority either didn't go to college, went to community college. Then you started to get to people who went to university of Florida type thing. And there was probably a small subset of us that actually went outside of state. And so I, it was like, I was, I would say I wasn't proud of how I handled my education, that I cut corners, I didn't read books, I did cliff notes, I was very goal-oriented. Oh. So did not see myself as like I was I was the antithesis at the time of a growth-minded growth mindset individual. Hmm. So but I had great grades and great scores. So and a good enough story that I ended up getting into the University of Pennsylvania which i did not expect at all i applied to five schools i thought i'd go to university of michigan and and lo and behold i got into penn and i went wow. and penn for me was really interesting because i totally changed my attitude i was for the first time surrounded i was in a culture where learning was cool and people really enjoyed like not not everybody but i fell into a group where people were about the love of learning and so I got into it and it wasn't about the grades. It was just, I found a lot of my subjects interesting and I ended up transferring into Wharton. So I ended up having an under, you know, I got Wharton undergrad.
1: What were, and, you, what were you thinking when you went in as an undergrad? What, where
2: were you vectoring? I was vectoring. It's just such a good question. I was vectoring towards communications because the one thing I was excited about when I was growing up was the 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 women on the good morning America type shows. And so right. I thought I wanted to kind of be one of them. And so in high school, I would do the school news. We had TVs in all the classrooms. And I would be like, and today for lunch, we'll be having spaghetti and meatballs. You know, So I thought that was where I was headed. Mm. If you understand how much I struggled with the English language, it's funny. That is not where I should, that is not the color of my parachute. Mm. But so, so I
1: applied route and, and transferred into Wharton. I like
2: that's that. right. So I got in, right, exactly. Because I would not have gotten into Wharton, but I wasn't interested in business. But I started taking some classes, and it just like business came easy to me. I came from a bunch of see, a whole family of CPA certified public accountants. Mm-hmm. That just was like this path, like thing that made sense. So business in general just always made sense to me. And I'm not proud of this, but it's like, that's where I was getting such good grades. The other stuff I struggled a little bit more with like English. So I, I, I moved on over and just not really being focused on what I wanted to do yet. All the, the top firms come with, you know, this is the old days where they would just go to the top schools and they would give you really good job offers really young. Right. And so they knocked. And I, at the time, I think it was the big eight, but there were these accounting firms. And I never thought I wanted to grow up and be an accountant, but like, I knew I wanted to live in New York City. And there it was. And once again, not necessarily proud of this, but it was easy. It was the path of least resistance. I had a job in the bank and I was going to go live in New York City. So I didn't really think, what do I want to be when I grow up? And I just took that path of least resistance. So I
1: love that you're so upfront about that as well too, because it's really easy to kind of put the armor of the mythology of your own success on, especially once you've experienced a tremendous amount of it and accidents and even laziness, it's pretty easy to recast all of that as you being a rebel or really entrepreneurial. So you didn't do things, you know, and, and you're, you're being just so you're using words like lazy, easy path of least resistance. (laughs) And I think, that's probably a much more normal, because the switch can flip at all different times in your life, right? Like when that ambition comes, it doesn't always, it's not always when you're seven years old and mowing everyone's lawn, right? I mean, oftentimes that entrepreneurial itch, that ambition, that motor doesn't fully mature until there's some other catalyzing
2: event. Right, and so my flip switched heartily when I went to New York, and I you know, was starting my job. And the day before I started it, I cried to my now husband, then boyfriend to say like, what am I doing? Like, this is not what I want to do. Like, I forgot to even think about what I wanted to do. I just followed. And so that's literally the day how I started my job. And I did my job for two years. And I felt like I was a cog in a machine. And I I didn't feel like I was using my brain. And in fact, if I would try to use my brain or I was an auditor, I'd say, Hey, what if we audited like this, this year? They would say, well, how did we do it last year? And I'd say, we did it like this. They said, then that's how we're to do it this year. It's not and a I was professional like, that rewards creativity. No, no. And I didn't know that I needed that until I experienced not having it. And I literally was just like, I can't deal. Like I thought I am not cut out for business. Business is boring. And so but I'm goal oriented. So I wanted to earn my letters. I took the test and you had to work two. So I passed the test, but you had to work two years. So I literally quit two years to the day. Wow. And when I went, I went into the HR woman and I said, you know, I'm going to quit. And she said, why? And I said, well, I'm going to take a year off and go backpacking around the world. And so I'm out, you know? And she said, oh no, no, no. Then you should take a leave of absence because leave it. And I said, no, I want to quit. Please mark in my, her, I'm quitting, and she said, "No, no, you don't understand. A leave of absence just means you have the opportunity, the option to come back. It's not a, it's not a commitment." I said, "Oh no, I understand what it means. I need this door closed because I don't belong here. You gotta burn but to come trip. back, I'm like exactly. Right. I have to burn this down because I'm going to come back in a year and be broke, and I may not know what I want to be when I grow up, and I may come knock, but I don't, I don't. So if you could put that in my folder, she looked at me like I was." crazy so i but i knew like i i didn't know what i wanted to do but i knew what i did not want to do so i took a year off i went backpacking i saved enough money to do it, it was super cheap and i did it with a girlfriend of mine and when i landed i landed to be with my now husband then boyfriend who was at stanford for law school and i literally had no idea what i wanted to do hold on are we fast forwarding through the whole year abroad
1: yeah, we did. You want more about that? <laughs> yeah, just give us a little color on that. Because, you know, again, that's a thing now in 20, or at least in 2019, that's like this standard bourgeois rite of passage now, right? Yeah. Put the backpack on, like, like international travel, navigating, you know, your rail system. That was all pretty exotic at, at that point, right? So yeah. that, oh. that in and of itself is, is, I think, kind of remarkable that, that you and a girlfriend decided you were going to set off to parts unknown.
2: It actually was really, uh, to your point, like this is where you're going to start to see my rebel kick in because that's when I was like, yeah, like let's go do this, and and we, my father was like, you cannot quit your job and not have another job lined up. You will not, be, no one will hire you, and I was like, I am educated and able. I will find a job, and he was like. It doesn't work that way. No one hires people who don't have a job. And I was like, I'll be back. So luckily, I have a very supportive family. By the time I went, they were super supportive. But we bought a one-way ticket to, to to Australia, and we stopped in New Zealand. And we had a stop. We could do one more free stop. So we picked Cook Islands just because we were like, well, I've never heard of those. And so we started our journey in the Cook Islands and got certified to become a scuba diver, which turned out to be huge for both of us. We became avid scuba divers. Then we went from Cook Islands to New Zealand, New Zealand to Australia, where we spent six weeks, New Zealand to Australia, and then we spent the rest of the time in Southeast Asia. And we just would go piece by piece. We never knew where we wanted to go. And at one point we separated. I really wanted to go trekking in Nepal. The woman I was traveling with did not. We separated, we joined back up in Thailand, and then, yeah, it was amazing. It it was life-changing amazing, yeah. Hmm.
1: All right. Well, thanks for the, yeah. like for the brief digression. All right. So you get back stateside, your old man's at Stanford.
2: Yep. Yep. And, and so I live with him just cause I am, you know, I, I don't have a lot of money and I don't know what I'm, I have no job. And so I start going to the Stanford career center because I'm allowed, just I'm allowed to, I have no Stanford affiliation. And this is old school. All you participants are not going to be able to get your head around this, but there was no internet. So there were these binders and I would put, you would pull down. It would say like, you know, nonprofits, business, you know, teaching, whatever it was, there are all these binders and whatever sector you were interested in, you would pull that down. And then you'd flip through all the printed job descriptions and job postings and then apply, apply to them. Like apply and how. It, yeah, the, I'm pretty sure I'm trying to think. We, did we have email or did you call then? Maybe there there was email. Okay. It must have been email. I don't remember, but it would say how to maybe I would fax my resume yeah. and cover letter. <laughs> I can't. I that part's a little blurry, yeah. but it was like literally I would take a notebook and write down like how to apply, or I could photo I would go up and photocopy the one sheet that I liked. And I remember being envious as people would come into this the the career center and they would pull down their binder and they would sit down and I literally would take like 10 binders because I had no idea what I wanted. Like I didn't even know anything. And so I read all these job descriptions and, and once again, remember, I think I hate business because I had such a, like, I hate business from before mentality. And I read this job description at this company called my software company. And they're looking for a marketing, junior marketing assistant. And I'm reading about this software company and I'm reading about the job and damn, if it doesn't sound interesting. And I'm like, well, I know this is different. It's not CPA. Maybe I'll apply. And I thought it was the dumbest name ever. It was called My Software Company. So it sounded kind of silly enough that I was like, I've never really had to interview. I'll I'll go there. Mm -hmm. So I sent, however I reached out, can't remember, and they invited me in and my mind was blown. I didn't know about Silicon Valley, like by the luck of my husband being at law school, did I end up in Palo Alto mm-hmm. and I enter a building and everyone's wearing t-shirts and, and shorts. And then each person I meet with is ridiculously smart and interesting. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I don't, I don't understand. I literally came home to my boyfriend and was like, I I I, 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 I didn't know this was, this existed. And he was like, it's Silicon Valley. Of course it exists. I was like, I, I don't know about Silicon Valley. So lo and behold, I ended up getting that job. And the thing that's interesting, and I have to point this out, is the, if I had just been a CPA and then applied, they would not have been interested in me. So the thing that I thought I was doing, which was traveling, that I thought would hurt my career, even though you know my dad told me, so I agreed with him that it would hurt, but I still wanted to do it. It turned out, they're like, this woman's interesting. This woman has conviction in herself. So they told me after the fact that the reason I got the job was like seeing a CPA take a year off that I had an appetite for risk and they wanted to learn more. So it's so interesting. Like uh, you're going to hear a pattern in how I speak, but what I learned was stop doing things that you think look good or good for the story and start doing things you actually want to do because that's what you're going to be good at. And then more opportunities will open. Yeah.
1: I don't think we have any like high schoolers tuning into this. But I will tell you, or for those of us that are listening, we'll have a recording of this. There's two pieces of wisdom that Jenny's already shared that are just so germane for young people, people in junior high, high school. I mean, the first one, you said, I forgot to think about what I wanted to do. That is... That is kind of an arresting statement, but it's one that yeah. I am positive that so many people have been confronted. They've, they've done the work. They put one foot in front of the other. They've done what either society or mom or dad or peers or whatever told them to do. And you get to the end and you're like, oh my gosh, I forgot to think about what I wanted to do. So that yeah. one, which which the cool thing is, is in the... Stanford Career Development Center, you finally had an opportunity to do that with all those three ring binders. But the other thing too, is increasingly, you know, there's just a lot of, like, like running the playbook is not always the best thing to do. And if you're interested in a career that's, that embraces the opposite of homogeneity, that embraces uh, risk-taking you need to start practicing that, you know, the way you get good at anything is by practicing. And that includes taking risks. So practice taking risks early and it'll pay big dividends later in life. So, so I'll- and if I,
2: could, if I can just layer a couple things in what you said, that I think it's really interesting. So I'm a mom of three kids. So I don't mean to fast forward too far, but I <laughs> am the mother of three kids. And one of them just finished high school. He was supposed to go to college in the fall and we were discussing deferral, not deferral. And so I've basically always given my kids now frameworks that I've developed myself of like, okay, what's the upside, what's the downside, what's the worst case, you know, when you talk about how do you get comfortable with risk? Well, you think about what's the worst case scenario? Oh, you can live with that? It's not that risky. It seemed risky, but once you realize worst case scenario, it's not that risky. So, so, and if I look back in time, I did tell myself when I left to go travel, I had been a waitress in college, so I always knew I can always come back and wait tables. That's what gave me the, the okay to, to, yeah. to, to go travel. So my point is what I tell my kids all the time is there's no right or wrong. Here's the framework for decision-making. And then the number one like, lesson I have learned in life is conscious choices. All choices are okay, but you wanna make them consciously. Yeah. And to your point, I forgot to think, that's mm-hmm. the lack of a conscious choice.
1: Yeah, you let momentum start making the decisions for you.
2: Yeah, yeah that's, I or think... what you're supposed to do. People always say, "Well, I should go get two years of management consulting experience," or "I should." I'm like, I think "should" is a dirty word. <laughs> <laughs> I'll curse on this. I'll tell yeah, you more yeah, letter it. words. "Should" is the dirty word that I. Will oh, not I love not it! Use. I love yeah. it.
1: That's so. That's so good. All right, so, and don't worry, we can skip all around in your story. I think I think that's fine. But I just wanted to point out those are two, and and that's not just germane for seventeen year olds. It's germane for forty six-year-olds as oh, well totally! to be reminded of, of both of those truths okay so you get the job at the poorly named software company <laughs> is it in
2: palo alto it's in palo alto okay. it's called my software company and it's sold it, it once again you you participants will probably have trouble getting your head around this it was software sold in a box at office depot and staples and whatnot to small businesses so it allowed small businesses to create it was like my brochure maker, my business card maker. So you can make your own marketing materials and print them off your printer. Okay. And it did really well. It ended up actually, while I was there, going public. It became called Click Actions. But it was, it was, it was, you know, it was great. And the thing that was the best was that it was meritocracy. So here I am, this junior thing. But the more I'm thinking and the more I'm unafraid and bring my full self to the table, the more like, yeah, you go. Yeah, you can have that too. Mm-hmm. And so there was no there was no one sort of protecting their territory. There was no rules. It was just like be thoughtful, come up with ideas and then if you did, you would you could take them. So the internet starts hitting. It's like 1994. And everyone, we're in the heart of Palo Alto. We're like, I live basically a, a minute away from Stanford. This, mm-hmm. this office building is like five minutes from Stanford. All these people went to Stanford and we're all sitting in meetings going, so is the internet AOL or is AOL like a subset of the internet? Like we had no idea. So I said, well, I'll go figure it out. They're like, oh, that would be awesome. So I just basically go and try to understand what is the internet? What is this worldwide web that we were all speaking of versus AOL or Prodigy and Netscape is coming and so trying to figure it all together. And I understand it. And then they said, great, would you like to head up the internet division? And I was like, sure. So I came up, my first product management job is I came up with a product called my internet business page, which sounds so silly now, but it was actually ahead of its time, and it, we ended up. Our main competition was with Netscape and with Microsoft because it was an easy way to create a web page. Okay, so, all right, yeah. Is that kind of? I mean, are we talking like
1: GeoCities era as well, where it was maybe pre GeoCities?
2: Wow. Okay. Yeah.
1: That's amazing. I mean,
2: I I don't know GeoCities timeline, but we're talking 1996? Yeah, I mean, this is early. So
1: this is months after the first commercial version of the
2: Netscape browser's released. Oh, I think we had gone. I think we were preparing it. Yeah, so Netscape existed, barely. Yahoo totally existed. Netscape existed, but they didn't have an easy way to create a web page. That came Mm -hmm. later. So here it is. So here we were a company who helped you make brochures and business cards. Well, let's help you make a website, which was like mind blowing. And so it was truly like creating brochureware, and then us figuring out how you were going to host it, because this is before, you know, all the easy hosting. So hosting was kind of a bitch back then. And we sort of simplified that as much as we could. So I'm now like 27, 28, I'm having a great time, but I realized that I kind of have an itch to go and be experienced Stanford. Like I'm a little bit, I've been drinking the Kool-Aid that Stanford is the end all be all. So (laughs) I'm older than your average for business school at that time. And I think, well, it's not so much I want to get an MBA as much as I want to go to Stanford and I love business. So I applied to Stanford, but only to Stanford. And if not, I would have just carried on and I get in. And so I, I leave my software company to go to Stanford. So I'll pause for a moment before I carry on in case you have any anything you want to ask or interject. No, I yeah. just,
1: I, I love that a Penn undergrad somehow gets it in their head a few years later that the only college that matters in the world is Stanford. <laughs> you clearly have extraordinary expectations around the, the, the pedigree of higher ed so I so so far you are that is a pretty good playbook you're running by the way and I think in that particular case the majority would say you, you were you were doing it the right way.
2: Yeah that one felt really good to me. I was very at this point I'm all about conscious choices. I made a I made a deal with myself when I traveled that I would never do anything because I'm supposed to do it. And so that was like a truly and I've I've held true to that. And so I really like had Stanford, I don't know if it's envy, but the way that every, I mean, my whole office was Stanford and the way they talked about it, it sounded magical. And I felt like, wow, if I'm gonna experience that magic, it's kinda now, otherwise I'm gonna be the old lady at the yeah. class. Yeah. And I already was a few years older. Most people did two or three years and then they went to business school and now I had been a number of years out. So I wanted to still feel like I was part of it. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's, okay, so you get in Stanford. And yep. it's and it's everything you dreamed it would be?
2: It is, it totally is. Now I got married right before I started. So I get married and then start like a few weeks later and it is everything I dreamed it would be. And it's like, I feel like a kid in a candy shop, you know, the people are awesome. Everyone's so interested. You're supposed to be having fun. That's like part of the, the whole networking of it all. This is also when I was against the word networking because that sounded very should. But what I discovered is being around smart, interesting people is networking. And so, but I'm really finding myself interested in venture capital. And so there's this, and I didn't know it wasn't entrepreneurship. It was venture capital that I was like, I've, and it's because the guy who was my mentor at my software company had been a venture capitalist. So he had sort of told sure. me about it.
1: Yeah. And this and so, again, for your, for, for your listeners at home, the, the industry of venture is literally probably 100 times bigger now. Oh my God, totally. Than it was in 96. So when you just think about AUM, the number of people in it, the amounts of money sloshing around. I mean, now everyone's 85 year old mother knows what VC, you don't have to say venture capital. Yeah. But in 96, that was the definition of a cottage industry.
2: Totally, totally, especially like seed stage, right? And so it was, if you said to someone, interested in venture capital, they're like, oh, interesting. It was definitely unique, right, to your point. It was small. And so I read about this competition where if you submit a business plan, and this is not part of my class, it's like an extracurricular thing at Stanford, if you submit a business plan, then venture capitalists will review your plan and give you feedback. And I'm like, wow, I can see how venture capitalists work and maybe need a few venture capitalists. Cause, like, to your point, I hadn't really met one. I met an ex one. Mm. And so I see this woman at all the same events that I'm at. So I say to her, Hey, would you be interested in working on a business plan with me? She's like, "Uh, Yeah, maybe. Like, do you have any business ideas in mind? I said, Well, yeah, there's this one that I have that I've never quite gotten, like, you know, that I've thought about for years. And it's an aggregated gift registry. And her, mom, her, her jaw drops open. She said, I wrote a business plan for that two years ago, and I was, or a year ago. And I was like, I thought about doing it two years ago. And so we end up getting together, and we mesh our ideas. And mine, I'd come at it from one angle. She'd come at it from another. We put a business plan together. We submit it just for fun. And we win the competition. But let me be clear. Oh, I think everyone was a winner. It was very Stanford's way of doing things. We literally, everyone kept on getting announced and the winners are, and like we'd go up on the stage and then you looked and there was no one left in the audience and you realized the whole stage is full. It became our thing of like Stanford, where everyone's a winner. But, you know, a friend of mine told me once, like the hard
1: part's getting in, you know what I mean? Oh, totally. Once you get in, they do everything in their power to make you successful. And it's such, I mean, what a wonderful environment, frankly. Because it's not a participation trophy, you get it, you know. But that's that's really cool. And so this was for weddingchannel.com, or what ultimately became. Yes, okay. that
2: is exactly right. So what happened was is we so we submitted, we we won, and we carried on. We thought we'd go back second semester, first year, and lo and behold, we get a ping, an email from one of the judges, and he was at Kleiner Perkins. And now this is when Kleiner Perkins was like. the venture capitalists, like they were, they were king of the hill and no one even like rivaled them at Mm -hmm. least in in the world our view, in the world view at that moment. And, you know, they had backed Netscape, they had backed Amazon there, there were, you know, yeah. So we, we were dying when we got that email and the guy said, his name is Dave Wharton. He said, Hey, I recently got married and I think your business plan makes a lot of sense are you guys taking it seriously or was that just like for fun for the competition? We're like, seriously, you know, even though it wasn't, you know? And so, and so we start working on it. This is second, second semester of our freshman or of our first year. And we start just grinding on the business and then meeting with this guy, David Kleiner Perkins, and then working more on the business. And this is awesome. When I got introduced to the Valley way where all these people were helping us, even though there was no reason for them to, And we're all like, why, why are these successful people being so helpful? It's like, it's karma, right? It's like the Valley way. It's like, you just kind of help each other out. And it was incredible, both our classmates and also like as the the older people, you know, would be like, Hey, I can't help you out here, but my friend knows someone at the Gap or knows someone at Williams-Sonoma. And you're like, okay. And they would introduce you just to be kind. So fast forward, um, And we meet with a couple more venture capitalists. Now we're very serious about it. We almost aren't attending class much. And we actually have this as a class. We've made an independent study. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, it gets hot and Kleiner's interested. And then Benchmark, Benchmark was new. And they had a huge Kleiner chip on their shoulder. They wanted to be out, you know, the best. Mm -hmm. So they get interested. We don't know the game of venture at all. And we didn't realize that when we said to our Kleiner person, like, Oh, you know, because Benchmark and they said, "Oh, you're meeting with Benchmark." And it's like, "Yeah, we met with them. It was great. They're gonna have us meet all the partners on Monday." And they're like, "Now I know for all of you, that's the Monday partner meeting. And if you're meeting at the Monday partner meeting, it means they're very, very serious." Yeah. So then Kleiner moved really fast. We had multiple term sheets, and we ended up choosing Kleiner. And so, but to your point, we had to drop out of business school. And Doug mm-hmm. McKenzie at Kleiner said, "Like, I want to work with you guys, but I cannot handle the guilt." of like ruining your careers hmm. and this could fail. Like it's million, a million dollars. Like our startups often fail. So are you sure that you're comfortable leaving business? School? I want you to think long and hard. And so my partner and I go to lunch and it's like, I'll totally quit. And she's like, I'll totally quit. We're like, great. Can you pass the, the, the bread? <laughs> I mean, it was like a no. Cause it was like, once again, like, We got in, and I love, to your point, her father, who is, I wish I could do an Italian accent. He said to her, he's like, so it may come out like a Jewish accent because I'm Jewish, but he's like, now getting into Stanford, that's impressive. But dropping out of Stanford now, that's really (laughs) impressive. (laughs)
1: That's good. That's true. And, I mean, quite frankly, before it was in vogue, so... Yeah. Again, you we know, the last first. years, yeah. it's it's it, it actually becomes like the obvious thing. It's actually you're a rebel if you stay, if you graduate. But <laughs> but yeah, at that point, you were definitely breaking some new trails. Oh, we
2: sure were, and I'll tell you that the dean, when we told the dean, hey, we got funded, we got a million dollars from Crowder Perkins, we have got to do this. If it doesn't work, we'd love to come back. But if it does, like you know, and he said, if you if you want to come back it's cuz you failed and we don't want failures here. Yeah. yeah. We're like they changed, changed their tune now. Exactly. Now you make Oh them. yeah, they changed their tune about 6 months the later. The guy running
1: the endowment and see if they can get a piece of the business. So it's it's they've wised up. That's the good news.
2: They wised up, I would say about 6 months later cuz it's dot com days. And so we went first in our cohort, I'm sure other people have done it ages before, yeah. but dot com and it was like there was something here and now and if you didn't do it he said to us if the business is that good it will be there for you in a year and we're like it won't be uh, it's like it's dot com like it's it's someone's gonna grab it first so anyway so we we left they Stanford's been lovely so let me just be on the record to say that like that was a first knee-jerk reaction but they they came around pretty quickly like a year later they started you know treating us you know as if we were one of them Mm. and that was the beginning have a whole new, whole new phase.
1: Okay. So what happens? I mean, we can, (laughs) we, I, I, we've got some questions coming in, so I definitely want to make sure we keep some time for that. Yeah. Uh, You know, I, I think our team is always really interested uh, in in hearing about exits, how you kind of navigate, when is it time? How do you find the right suitor? Yeah. How do you negotiate life? After the exit. So maybe maybe give us just I'll a, skip. Yeah. a little bit of I think the,
2: the growth story and then the exit piece. will do. So first of all, it's relevant to know that because we had Kleiner, and once again, this is back in different VC landscape days. But if you had Kleiner, everyone and their mother wanted to give you money. So we had the great problem of too many people almost like forcing money on us. Hmm well before we needed it. Our valuation was way, like we were way in over our skis on valuation. Amazon gave us 22 million. We couldn't even get them to show up to a board meeting. This is, it was just like crazy time. Wow. So we ended up with a stellar team and a shit ton of money and uh, a business model that had a huge missing piece. So we were an aggregated gift registry. We were called and James. And we had every retailer except for the 800 pound gorilla, which was federated department stores. You had this other company down in LA that was, had like basically sold their soul to the two federated department stores. So they had federated, no other retailers, but they had good content, like pretty ways, pretty dresses online, good, good like customer acquisition bait. But They ran, we're running out of money, so so 2008 happened. Wait, no, I'm sorry, 1999 happened. Sorry, i missed. I'm oh, going different, rece- different recession, different recession. Yeah. So, 1999, Christmas happened, and then the world falls, falls apart in 2000. And here we are, we have we can do anything, right? So, RBC said to us, You have a you have a you have something wrong in your model. We knew we had something wrong in our model. The aggregated gift registry without the big the big guy didn't really work. and and so he said, you can either figure that out or you can go do anything because your team, you have team and money, and we love you guys, but this is a hard business, the way it is right now. So we actually went to the drawing board and tried to think of anything. and like we still were a little attached to the aggregated gift registry. And there was Wedding Channel, and they, were, they had no money, but they had our missing parts. So we did a 50-50 merger in about March, or may I forget, of 2000. Okay, okay. That's, and so it was It it was, that, and it was and one of those that like, for, and the fact that it still exists, right? Like it was the really, everything I mean, that's they like had, a, that's we like needed, a, and vice versa. It's like a top decile
1: outcome for that vintage when you think about, yeah. Kind of what happened to so many others. Can you, and just because I I mentioned it in your bio, and I I know it's part of your story, but I don't know much about it. Bella Pictures.
2: Yeah. So Bella Pictures is really interesting. We were the first, we were a little ahead of our time in that we were the first national photography company. And it was at a time where wedding photography, we were starting with weddings, but we could do all events. Wedding photography, super cottage industry we figured out how to kind of use gig economy before gig economy was a word. We didn't even use that word, but it was gig economy where we said, you have these amazing photographers out there who may not want to be quote unquote wedding photographers, but man, they need to pay their bills. So we did this best of breed. We had salespeople selling it. We were good at marketing, customer acquisition. We had great salespeople selling it on commission. We'd then match them with an amazing photographer. We had a operation center in Pahrump, Nevada, where we would turn out really efficiently the wedding albums and the dvds and so you got basically an amazing high quality top tier photographer at sort of a more average price and we were a rocket ship Mm. an absolute rocket ship until we weren't which is that 2008 came the whole world fell apart and we're still rocking and rolling we're like look at us we are recession proof and then Six months later, like the crumbling of each metric. We never went down, but every metric crumbled. And it turned out the reason we were able to shoot up was because it was a cottage industry. But then what brought was our demise was that these people were mom and pops and they were basically giving away their labor to put food on the table. And our labor was a cost of goods sold. So we ended up finding a soft landing to CPI. It did not make money for me, did not make money for my investors. But like, I mean, they made some money, but not... I yeah, mean, yeah, sorry, course, they got some cents on their dollar, but they did not make money. Yeah, yeah, And so, but it's such, I learned more at Bella Pictures, the mm-hmm. failure. And I know that's a cliche, but it's true because yeah. I rode all the way up. And I also learned that we just didn't cut and react quickly enough to the world around us, which is super relevant as I work with all my portfolio companies now.
1: Well, I can only imagine. Yeah, I, I think you know, people there's, you know, of course there's the culture that kind of celebrates failure. I'm not necessarily in that camp, but if you can't be empathetic, you're going to be a really crappy investor yeah. and, and period. And you're not going to be very successful, certainly not over the long term. And frankly, it's very difficult to be authentically and sincerely empathetic. That means to feel the feeling that yes. the person on the other side of the table is feeling. And if you haven't felt it, and it's just an intellectual exercise and in empathy. It's not the same thing. So I yeah. clearly that clearly that's informed a lot of your success in picking winners and, and helping you. Um, kind of help founders navigate rough times. So I oh my
2: god, I, to me it's a game changer. I when I work with my founders. I'm giving them all the wisdom that I know to be true from not just my experience but you know, every, everything. Like I've been studying this for over 25 years, if you will. But I'm always able to say, I know how hard it is. Mm-hmm. And I often have a story. Like I once had a jackass on my board saying, you know what you guys need to do? You need to cut expenses and increase revenue. And I was like, thanks for that, man. Like that is not value add. So I'm like, I understand that when I'm here, it's really easy to say all this stuff. But when you're in it, it's hard. So anyway, I think empathy, especially at my stage, because we're seed stage, is everything.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, one more question, and then I want, we've got some, we got some questions pouring in, so I want to make sure that we have time for, for you to provide a thoughtful response to those. Always, maybe give us a little background on what that organization's about, how you came to be involved, and, and, and what do we need to know?
2: Yeah, so I'm going to start. I'm going to flip it around and tell you how it came to be, and then I'll tell you what it Great. is. Love it. So, Aileen Lee, she actually was at Kleiner Perkins back in the day and uh, and then went on to start her own fund, Cowboy. And she's just fantastic, fantastic human, fanto- fantastic venture capitalist. And it's, God, is it three years ago now? Two years ago? I've lost track of time. Sorry, COVID. I'll blame it on COVID. But anyway, Justin called back. There had just been some disturbing news in venture where powerful people had abused their power. And she emailed 17 of us, or maybe it was more, but 17 of us said yes, where she said, Hey guys, there is bad behavior in our industry, and we're all powerful women at our firms. I feel like we should get together and discuss and see if there's a window of opportunity to to make positive change. Mm. And I mean, I couldn't have said yes faster. Mm. A bunch of us said yes. And we all met. And could and, you I'm
1: just curious, could you relate in a very like one-to-one way with what she had experienced, or or were your experiences with that behavior more divorced or at a
2: distance? It was divorced. So for whatever reason, I had actually not had any of that happen to me. And I think it was just I dealt with like top once you're like once you're in like, you know, Doug McKenzie at Clona Perkins is the most ethical awesome man there isn't a creep factor in his bones Mm. and so like i was sort of like and my whole career i just like either i stayed away from it and i didn't even wear or whatever it was i had not had the experience but what i did know is when i became so i had a stint in between and i know we don't have time to go into it but i had a stint in between when I left Bella Pictures and when I was at Freestyle and I was doing angel investing and advising and I had all these women telling me, it's so hard to raise as a woman. It's so hard to raise. And I was like, stop it. It's not true. I raised as a woman, like get it. It's in your head. Like, no attitude. Like I really thought they were like making, making up a story. And then I become a venture capitalist. And then I start reading the data and I'm like, this data is, <laughs> I think those women were right. This data is abysmal, like this can't be. And I started talking to everyone to understand the data. So at this point, before I got Eileen's email, I knew we had a problem, right? I was like something like, and I would get everyone's take on it. And I was still in the mindset of like, venture capitalists are capitalists. I think you could be like a purple midget if you make them money, I don't think they care. But yet, this data, I mean, the data was so off the charts telling a story. So she sends that, and now we're talking about bad behavior, like real sexual harassment, bad behavior, but a bunch of smart women who all write checks, sit on boards, get around the table. And we started saying, like, do we do we help the women who have been harassed? Do we do this? And we all ended up saying, you know what, let's use our power to help create the future we all want to be a part of. So we took a very positive versus like fix the old, let's create the new. And we didn't have a name. We didn't even try to think we were a nonprofit. We just started shipping products. And so we, Jess Lee at Sequoia and I did the first round of female founder office hours. We just did it. We got up, we tried to demystify fundraising to a bunch of women. And then Jess carried on with female founder office hours, and I took on an initiative called Founders for Change, really taking the collective voices of founders to say, we as founders care about diversity not just within our companies, but actually at the firms with whom we work with. Just mm-hmm. to kind of try to make venture capitalists at the time, it was like 80% had zero diversity, like zero. So 75% mm-hmm. did not have a women, 75 or 80, I forget. And I think now it's 75, didn't have a woman at the at the table. Like, so yes, they had some they could put on the website, yep. but not really as decision makers. So we just started doing great stuff and it was working. And then someone important knocked on our door and said, we'd love to give you guys money and like, let's make this real and let's like take it up a notch. So that's when we like formed our, our nonprofit. That's when we gave it a name. And then we got to be on the cover of the, Midas, you know, the Midas List edition of, of Forbes and then it carries on. And so when everyone should know about All Raise is All Raise exists to increase diversity in the tech sector. And so that's within investors in operators and in funder in, in people getting the, the dollars from venture capital and founders. And we have really had a strong angle with women, but always with the understanding that actually all raises for all of us. We purposely did not want to limit it, even though we're clearly right now our hard, you know, our focus has been women. But once you see the numbers of people of color, like all this stuff that's come out recently, we we knew, we've been educated. In fact, we actually had a hard education because we made a lot of mistakes that because we had missed hmm. that part. And so the same way I've had to educate a lot of men to say, you're not sexist, but there's this thing you don't understand yet. Mm-hmm. We now, we had probably two years of education of people saying, hey, I'll raise. I get that you get the women thing, but there's this thing called systematic racism and you don't get it yet. And we hmm. were like, what and so we've 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 learned the hard way but we're and we're still learning let me just be clear yeah
1: well of course we appreciate you saying that but that's your that's your posture i'm not surprised is is there a geographic specificity to what All Raise does meaning if you're a female founder or you're a college student that's interested in venture and you're in detroit or indy or st louis is does Raise have an offering for someone like that?
2: Especially now, yes. You know, it was harder in the days where we had these actual in-person office hours or, you know, like teaching. So you have to go to the website and kind of see, I'll be honest, I'm on the board of AllRays, but I'm not as deep into what programs are happening now. But that is one of the areas we wanted to diversify. When we did our AllRays Summit, we had people flying in from all over the country because like part of the the lack of network and the lack of diversity is this bent towards the coasts and we wanted to have it not be I mean that's one of the reasons we love high alpha right it's like no there's talent everywhere and and how do you how do you help talent of all different kinds whether it's where they come from where they're living what they look like you know yeah yes different socioeconomics
0: Stay up to date with Hi Alpha, our portfolio companies, and the future of Enterprise Cloud. Subscribe to our newsletter to get portfolio updates, new company launch information, and the latest content in your inbox every month. Visit HiAlpha.com slash newsletter to subscribe. That's HiAlpha.com slash newsletter.
1: Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. Speaker Series Rewind is brought to you by Hi Alpha, a venture studio that designs and builds B2B SaaS companies. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts wherever you listen. You can also subscribe or find additional content at highalpha.com slash podcast. We'd really appreciate any reviews. it'll help us reach more awesome people like you. Catch you next time.